copy of God's perfect and precious word to Isaiah chapter 6. As you turn there, let me acknowledge this morning that this sermon was composed through many tears. Tears of weeping with those who weep, overwhelmed with a sense of sadness and grief. But those were not the only tears. Tears of thankfulness that God, in His sweet providence, had ordered for us a perfect text. For the day. And thankful for the God who is revealed in this text because there is indeed an answer that this God has for evil, for sin. And so it's with that sense of glad-hearted wait and joy that we look at Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand in reverence of the reading of God's perfect word. We're going to work through this entire chapter, but I want to read just one verse, verse 3. And one called to another and said... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we have no hope but you. That is true every second of every day. But today, perhaps those who have put their faith and hope and trust in you are more acutely aware. If you, O oh God, were not holy, 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 we would have no hope. Lord, help us to see our lives and the world in light of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. It looked like a bomb had hit. I was about Luke's age, I was about 16 years old, and my dad and I were driving through the aftermath of the path of a tornado that had hit the town that I grew up in, Montgomery, Alabama. It had been a devastating tornado that had resulted in deaths and tons of casualties. And I looked out and I saw 
what used to be a skyline that was full, that I had driven by so many times before, where you could barely see the sky above the greenness of the trees. But several weeks before, the violent, destructive winds of a tornado changed all of that. And as we drove through that path, what was once full and green was now brown and gray. And a skyline that almost covered up the sky at one time was nothing but a bunch of stumps. And we parked the car, and we got out, and we walked around. And all I saw was destruction, devastation, an entire area laid waste. And I remember as a young man, Occasionally seeing in the midst of the brown and the gray a little bit of green, a little shoot that had popped up. And I thought to myself, this isn't always going to look like this. There's hope. There's a a future for this place. Those little signs of life remind me that one day this is going to be full and green again. It was like those, those little shoots were little rays of hope and thoughts about the future. In our text this morning, Isaiah a man who was a part of uh, the the royal family, uh, a man who was affluent in a culture that was affluent, a man who knew what it meant to rub shoulders with the elite of the culture of his day, was marked by a sense of despair, a sense of disillusionment. You see, things were changing. There had been a king on the throne, and now he was dead. And the security that the people had known was fading into the background. And Isaiah was looking and longing. And what he needed was reality. We see in the first four verses that he gets it. The reality that he needs is the reality of the presence of God. The Bible keeps making that case over and over. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We need the presence of God that we may see reality for what it is. We have a tendency in the midst of our difficulty and despair to eclipse God and just look in and only see the moment And yet Isaiah here, he needs reality. And we see a God that graciously gives it to him. Look at the first part of verse 1. 
It sets the context for us. In the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah had begun ruling at age 16. He had had a 52-year reign. Much of his reign was marked by an incredible sense of stability that he helped bring the region, a sense of peace, a sense of prosperity. There was a pervading sense of confidence in Judah and confidence about the future that had marked much of his reign. There had been military success. There had been building success. There had been agricultural success. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, 1 through 15. But that's not the end of the story. King Uzziah had become proud. He had become rebellious. And the Bible tells us that he was stricken with leprosy. He was judged with leprosy for his pride and rebellion. We read about it in 2 Chronicles 26, verses 13 through 21. But now he is dead. And it wasn't just Uzziah that had drifted. But Uzziah the king had seen a a nation, a people that had drifted, that was now marked by corruption and immorality, and is so often in affluent cultures like ours. There tends to be a diminished view of God and a puffed up or exalted view of man. That's exactly what the book of Isaiah said was going on here. There was a diminished view of God in the culture. People tended in the midst of their success, their accomplishment, their victory, in the midst of the, they tended to look at themselves and say, we're good people, look at what we've done. And God had a place, but the place was over to the side. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 22, simply puts it like this. They needed to stop regarding man. One of the translations translates it, they needed to stop trusting man. They needed to trust God. The battleground of trust. Where does your confidence lie? In the glory of man or in the glory of God? Look how the text continues. God gives Isaiah here exactly what he needs. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Immediately, God, by his grace, gives Isaiah the reality of his presence. The Lord, the particular word here, Adonai, is the sovereign one. And he's on a throne. Why? Because he is the king. Do you get the contrast? A king is dead. 
but the king is on his throne and he is high and lifted up. He is above being manipulated. He is not threatened by the whims of culture. He is high and lifted up. He is the sovereign one. And at that time, it was very common for the length of the train of one's robe to distinguish their importance. I've got a sense of this. Uh, Now that I'm on the faculty at Southern Seminary, I have to wear my academic regalia to graduation and march in. But I know my place. You're told where to march because where you are and what you wear shows your importance. I'm dead last. I got a sense of who I am. Just happy to be here, folks. And it says here that he was high and lifted up on the throne as the king and the judge. And it says that the train of his robe literally filled the temple. The reality of the presence of God, the train of his robe is a visual picture that he could not be more important. It's not possible. He could not be more glorious than he is. It is not possible. This is the God. This is the king that Isaiah sees in the midst of his pain and disillusionment in the midst of his concern and insecurity about the future. It is a sovereign God, a sovereign king. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim, the, the, literally the burning ones. This is a, 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 a group of angelic beings who have a responsibility to be in the very presence of this one who is high and lifted up. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. Now, understand this. The Bible keeps warning that no man can see in his sinful condition the unveiled glory of God and live. For God's presence to be there, God has to veil his glory. That's the reason why there's so often smoke and these other phenomenons. But God is so gloriously holy that even the burning ones, the angelic host who are assigned to be in his presence, cover their eyes out of self-preservation. But it not only tells us that, it tells us that they covered their feet, which was a sign of humility. And it tells us with two, they flew always ready to do the bidding of God. You see the picture that's being painted here. This is the king. And it says in verse 3 that these angelic beings, these seraphim, these burning ones, called out to one another. It seems that it is a, a, a constant calling out. Holy, holy, holy. That's, that's the superlative raised to the highest degree. Holy, set apart otherness above and beyond. He is above, above, above. He is other, other, other. 
He is set apart, set apart, set apart. He is holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That is the Lord of the armies of heaven. Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of the armies of heaven, the great covenant name of God. And it says the whole earth is full of his glory, his weightiness. You see, the train of his robe not only fills the temple, the weight of his glory is upon the entire earth earth, it says. Verse 4, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, graciously veiling his presence is the reason it was filled with smoke. The smoke and the shaking are constant realities when the presence of God manifests itself in this way. We see it on Mount Sinai. We see it again and again. The king, a king, is dead. But God gives his presence. He is so doggedly determined to dwell with his people that God says, But the king is alive. The king, the king lives and reigns. Any sort of comfortableness that Isaiah had grown with in relation to God, any sort of sense in which Isaiah had God in his life but in his place, the sense in which is so common in affluent cultures, comfortable cultures. That is to profess a belief in God, but to believe somehow, some way that we have domesticated him. Somehow, some way, we have him in a particular place to call on him at our convenience. And when you think like that, When you remake God like that, it blurs your understanding of all reality. See, your mistakes in thinking about God result in mistakes in thinking about everything else, everything. That's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom. It is the reality of God, the presence of God that we so desperately need and why it's so glorious that God is so doggedly determined to dwell with his people, among us, to be present. And when we have a real sense of his presence, when we zoom out from the moment and remember his holy majestic, kingly, sovereign glory. It's transforming. It's liberating. But let me be clear. God does not answer all of our specific questions about the whys of every event. God reveals himself here. And he does not answer all of the questions that Isaiah 
may have had about the specifics of why now is King Uzziah dead. He never does that. And the only reason we want him to is because we so wrongly think we're capable of understanding all of the answers to the whys. It's our inflated view of ourselves. But he doesn't do it. But what he reveals about himself provides a context for us to put whatever happens. As the father of eight children, the evil and horrific news that came Friday of a bloody massacre of six and seven-year-old children and a mother and a group of educators brought me to tears instantly. I was sitting in the drive-thru at the bank and checking my phone and I began reading what had happened. And I almost vomited. And the faces of all my children ran through my mind instantly. And I just felt so sick. So disgusted. I felt terrified. I felt a sense of my own limitations. Almost a sense of helplessness. For I drop my kids off all the time. And these parents drop their children off. Only to be gunned down. And I was trying to process it in my own mind. And all I could think of was, I don't understand. But the king lives. There is a God who is holy, holy, holy. Who's sovereign. Who's in charge. And he didn't just start on the job. He has a track record. And I've got to make sense of the world in light of his track record. And it's a perfect track record. And every time I look back from the other side, I see how good he is. He can be trusted because of who he has revealed himself to be. That doesn't answer all the specifics of the questions that were reverberating in my own heart and mind. But it provides the context. Now you may be here this morning and you say, well, that's not good enough for me. 
I need to know all the specifics. I need to know the details. The only way I can go forward is to say specifically why something like this would happen in all of the details. Every parent knows what it means to lead your child into a particular environment that they don't understand, that they would never choose for themselves, that terrifies them. And oftentimes at ages where you can't explain it, take your child and put them in the pool for the first time. And so often they are so terrified. I had one child that when they would put their feet in the water, they would start literally shaking and look at me like, why would you do this to me? I didn't break out some long, detailed explanation to my one-year-old, two-year-old. I said, trust me. By the way, I've got a track record with you. I've cared for you. Trust me. If you don't get used to this, if you don't learn how to swim, it'll be dangerous. Trust me. The distance between the knowledge of God and your knowledge and my knowledge is a billion times greater than between the distance of my knowledge and my child's knowledge. We know that sometimes... You just have to say to your child, trust me. If I unfolded it all for you, you would look at me with bewilderment. But I have a track record. I have been here. And you think somehow, some way, you're capable of understanding all of the whys related to what God does and allows? So you can say, trust me to your children because you're not me. God has given me to lead you. But God cannot say, trust me to you. He has a track record. The reality is he's holy, holy, holy. He is the sovereign king who can be trusted. You see, reality begins... With the character of God. And it is the reality of who He is that brings the pathway for grace to us. Because it's only the reality of who He is that leads us to realization of the reality of who we are. You see, apart from the reality of who He really and truly is, we get ourselves wrong. And so what we look for is not grace. When we get him wrong and ourselves wrong, we think somehow we are demanding from him payment. Look at what I've done. Therefore, I deserve this, this, and this. But no, when we see him for who he really is, we have a real sense of his holy, holy, holy presence then the pathway is paved for us to understand our only hope is grace. Look at verse 5 of chapter 6. And I said, woe is me. Now something really important you've got to know here is they've been talking about the culture. 
And there were preceding woes, general woes, general warnings about what was going on in the land. They were corporate and general, but now in light of the presence of God, Isaiah is not just thinking about the culture. It's not just the woe, the the reality of the deservingness of judgment on the culture, but it is personal. He doesn't just say, woe is Judah. He says, woe is me. The presence of God has caused him to take his gaze off of the sin out there. To remember the sin in here. Woe is me for I am lost, literally undone, coming apart. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, this transforming reality of the presence of God caused him not just simply to look around and say, can you believe how bad it is out there? It is a land of unclean lips. Now, you've got to understand that the Bible keeps tying what comes off the lips to the reality of the heart. And so when he says here, a people of unclean lips, he's not just talking about a people that commit a particular sin, but a people who at their core are sinners, rebels. And he says, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I, at the very core of my being, I'm a sinner. I'm a rebel. I have a corrupted, unclean heart. That's the reality of who I am. Sin is not just out there. Sin is in here. I possess a sinful nature. And get this. That unrestrained is capable of the very rebellious, sinful actions that we hear about and despise. He says, the root is in me. Everybody doesn't act out on their rebellious heart in the same way. But the Bible says that everybody by nature has the root of the corruption in them. We don't just do particular sins. We are sinners. And when we hear about things like we have heard about this week, we know that though we have never done anything like that, and never will. The sin and corruption in my heart is real. See, that's very important to remember. Because you tend to hear things like this. If God is sovereign, why does he allow evil? If God is sovereign, why does he allow sin? Why doesn't he just wipe it out? You see, Isaiah knew that that would be a plea for his own destruction. 
not just the destruction of others. Do you understand if you say that? Why doesn't God just wipe out sin? Yeah, that has something to say about the people who manifest evils in ways that shock us. But I wonder, are you without sin? Am I without sin? If God wipes out sin in an instant, he wipes out you. And he wipes out me. Perhaps God has a plan better than that. Perhaps it's a plan to rescue sinners. The biblical question is not so much why do bad things happen, but the biblical question is more why do good things happen to sinners like us? I was asked yesterday at a football banquet. Hey, I know you're a pastor. How do you make sense of the events in Connecticut? And I could only answer by saying, I don't understand all of the whys. God hasn't let me in on that. But I do understand why it happens. There is really sin in the world. There really is evil. People are not basically good. People are sinners. I'm a sinner. The fact that we see sin rearing its head in rebellion against God is what it means to live in a world of very real evil, very real sin. There is a kingdom of darkness. There is a serpent, Satan. There is really a battle going on. God has poured out his restraining grace where we do not see the face of evil all the time, but it's there. You see, the problem is usually the premise. If you believe that people are basically good, you have no hope when you see evil. I never saw the movie Silence of the Lambs, but I saw a clip because somebody wanted me to see a particular part. It was Hannibal Lecter, the serial killer, in the plot, having a conversation with Officer Starling, trying to figure out, why does this guy do what he does? And he's asking him things like, what happened to you that would make you do this? And he says, nothing happened. I happened. He said, you can't reduce me to a series of consequences? You, Officer Sterling, have replaced good and evil for behaviorism. He said, look at me, Officer Sterling. 
Can't you say, I am evil? The Christian worldview says, you are evil. And there are evil, wicked, rebellious, tragic events in a world marred by sin. But I want you to think about this. If you saw your child this morning, praise him. Praise him for his grace. I had tears in my eyes as I was holding one of my children about the age of those children singing with her this morning. God, thank you for your restraining grace. Thank you. This moment, praise be to you. And pray and weep for those for whom that is not the case. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then the seraphim flew to me, having on, in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from, with tongs from the altar. That is, from the altar of sacrifice, the place of sacrifice, the shedding of blood, where wrath was satisfied. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. He gives us this wonderful picture. Because of sacrifice, there is a way that at the very point of his sin, your guilt can be taken away, your sin's forgiven, the wrath that you deserve satisfied. And Isaiah knows here, he has done nothing Nothing but acknowledge his sin, his guilt, and his uncleanness. His deliverance, his forgiveness is the work of the grace of God alone. Is Isaiah spared because he deserves it? No. He's spared because he understands that he doesn't deserve it. And he's not holding his hand out saying, God, I hold you to a debt. He's trusting his grace. And it's on this point that Isaiah or any one of us is fit to be on mission for God. See, his presence brings reality. The reality of who he is is the pathway for the reality of who we are and our longing for grace. And grace is the fuel by which we serve him in the world and we're on mission for him. Look with me very quickly at verses 8 through 13. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then he said, Here am I, send me. You see, the unclean lips touched by the grace of God will now be the lips that proclaim his name. Without an awareness of the absolute need of grace, he would have no hope. But he is liberated to serve God no matter the task because it's not dependent upon him. When we are self-interested, when we are self-protecting, we cannot be on mission for him. It is grace that liberates us to speak and to serve. Look at verses 9 and 10. And he said, go and say this to the people, keep on hearing but do not perceive. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. That's the message. The message is to be one that confirms the hardness and rebellion of their own heart. It would be a, a, a message that was very difficult. Look at verse 10. Make the heart of the people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. This is the judgment for the rebellion in the land. Verses 11 and 12. Then I said... 
How long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and the houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. For the Lord removes people far away. The exile, the devastation, the desolation. Verse 12, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is failed. It will be a desolation. This is your task, Isaiah. Nobody will listen. They will, they will stop your, their ears, but you will be an instrument of mine. Nobody will clap. Nobody will praise. The only way you can be on mission like that is you believe that your only hope is found in the grace of God. You're liberated from being self-protecting. You're liberated from living for the applause of men. You're liberated to serve the king. But I wonder, is this the end of Israel? Was the burning the end of Isaiah? No. There's one more glorious sentence at the very end of verse 13. The holy seed is its stump. What? Desolation, devastation. But there is life in the stump by the grace of God. In the midst of the judgment in the midst of the destruction, in the midst of the devastation, there is life in the stump. And it will be further explained in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. In other words, David is coming. This is not the end of Israel. There is a little green shoot in the midst of the devastation and destruction. There is hope. There is a future. But there is one even beyond David that he points us to here. There is one who would be born, who would be the one who would sit on the throne of David forever without end. The full flowering of the shoot that pops up. There is hope. There is a future. In John chapter 12, there's absolutely no missing who this is. Listen to John chapter 12, verses 36 through 43. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Same thing going on in Isaiah's day. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the, has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Where's that from? That's Isaiah 51.3, the text of the suffering servant. Jesus is the suffering servant servant. Verse 39, therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. That's Isaiah 6.10. That is the exalted king. Jesus is the exalted king, the sovereign, who chooses to suffer that he might redeem sinners. See, Christianity has a place for evil, and it also has the place for the triumph over evil. 
Verse 41 of John 12 says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah said these things because in this vision, he saw the glory of Jesus. He spoke of Jesus. Verse 42, nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but we see it's not saving faith. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And so the problem in Isaiah's day is the problem in Jesus' day. What will you regard? What will you trust? The glory of man or the glory of God? If you trust the glory of man, you have no answer. When evil shows its face, in an unrestrained way. If you trust in the glory of man and you see the wicked rebelliousness of man, where is there to turn? But you know what? The glory of God has a cross at its center. The glory of God has an altar and God himself in the person of the Son is the altar. The glory of God has a sacrifice. And God himself in the person of his son, the sinless one, is the sacrifice. The glory of God has a cross at the center for atonement. That his shed blood might be applied to the reality of our sin and rebellion. And our guilt might be taken away and we might be made one with him. The glory of God has a cross at its center. And the reality is that the baby born in that smelly manger in Bethlehem was born into the midst of a war. From the very beginning of the Bible, when sin came to the world, and there was a promise that a seed born of woman would crush the head of the serpent, Satan has set his heart against children. He hates children, he hates babies. And he raised up Herod's because he's the Herod behind the Herod's. And when this baby was born in Bethlehem, Herod said, the blood of every baby boy shall flow. I will stop this. But the blood did not flow in that way. The plan of God unfolded. And the babe shed his blood but not at the wrath of Herod, to bear the wrath of God for guilty sinners. God in human flesh, the serpent raged, Herod raged, but he was born to crush the head of the serpent. Parents, do you want to protect your children? Do you want to fight evil in the world? Tell them the Christmas story. You can't protect them from temporal evil. But you can point them to the victory over evil fully and finally and forever. You see, your telling of the Christmas story is spiritual warfare. Because you don't stop in the manger. 
you say, no matter what happens, there's hope. Because there was a shoot out of the stump. He was born in a manger. He died for sinners. But he's risen. And you say, Christmas echoes for us forever. The king lives. Trust him. Serve him. Let's pray.